Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. It's Tuesday. It is Tuesday! Or is it Tuesday, Megan? Uh, psych. It's actually, well, it's Monday when we're recording it. It's yes. Tuesday, hopefully, for the rest of you, as long as we logistically release this okay. I always get concerned when we release this on a Monday and save it for Tuesday. I'm like, what happens if we press that release button early? We're going to confuse everyone. Yeah, we've had some technical difficulties on the podcast, too. I think our, our podcast provider might not be the best in the world. We might need to do a shift, um, but we don't know enough to do that shift. I get so scared whenever I make a technical change to anything. I'm like, this is going to collapse the entire world around me. And I've grown to, uh, you know, uh, rely on this so much. So we'll see. There might be some changes coming. I feel that way whenever I update the operating system on my phone. I'm like, oh, what am I getting into right now? I don't know what's going to happen. So I feel a little bit that way when we release it, when we record a podcast on a Monday and release it on a Tuesday. The other reason being the last few times we've done this, like a major world event has happened between the recording and when we release. Yeah. And it makes us sound tone deaf because we're not addressing it so hopefully we have 24 hours and hopefully we can make it without a major world event and then we will break that streak of happening i don't know though i mean you follow in the news right now it is depressing out there and it happens new new things happening all the time um i mean i don't think we're going to get into uvalde in particular um on on this podcast because i know we said our piece on guns in the past and it's just so so freaking tragic um but for those out there that felt the weight of the world last week in particular just know that so many are right alongside you we are too i mean I cried about that news and usually like big world news kind of goes in one year out the other. Um, it's just really tragic. And I mean, I think that a lot of people are feeling that right now, the hopelessness, the sadness, just know it's okay if you're going through that, you are loved, you are enough as you are, and it's okay to feel those feelings. I saw that across training logs last week. I would say the collective HRV of athletes I coach dropped like 10 to 15 last week. Yeah. It was massive in, you know, just seeing higher levels of exhaustion, just life fatigue. And I think, you know, it translates differently for every athlete, that type of stress and how they feel it in their lives. And definitely saw it last week in training logs. Yeah. I mean, we always try to ground everything in love on this podcast and as um, we even listened to a song lyric this week from San Francisco by the Mobleys. It's this amazing song. Such a good song. We were hiking this weekend. I probably played it like seven times while we were out there because the lyrics, I never quite tuned into the lyrics until you brought them up. And then as soon as I heard them, I was like, this is our song. It's and so it, good. And basically the way like the chorus ends is, you know, I believe in something binding us together. Maybe love will be strong enough. And I think the events of last week in particular really drew home that, you know, love's not going to cut it. Um, that love gets you fucking steamrolled if you're fighting against, uh, you know, this political apparatus that doesn't care. Um, and that's why, I mean, at least for me, my big takeaway politically of everything is that, you know, decorum, statesmanship, all of that is not the answer. Um, and so I've gotten really hopeful seeing people like Steve Kerr speak out in, with anger um, in, in, because that anger is the only thing that's going to get anything done anymore. Like it's, it's just, I think, required of all of us in all of our actions and um you know enough being like nice is not going to do it anymore and i think steve kerr he's so i mean when he speaks he's so eloquent yeah. and he's so poised and passionate and seeing him do what i mean if you haven't seen it right now it, it, it went viral last week yeah. but it, that was what i think really i think I latched onto that as being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what he was just saying. And so I think if you haven't seen that, go see that. But I think it's just very normal right now to have total swirls of emotions going on. And I think also, I think the biggest thing I saw amongst athletes was just the feeling of like helplessness. It's yeah. like, this keeps happening. And if love doesn't cut it, then where the heck do we go? And I think also anger doesn't necessarily cut it either. And it's like, it's almost like trying to solve like 
uh, unsolvable wordle in some situations mm-hmm. is I feel like, like a similar analog and just seeing athletes really struggle with that. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I wouldn't say unsolvable wordle so much as- Well, like, I mean, the answer is obvious. It's like, you know, you're playing a wordle with like the obvious yeah. answer, but like, it's it's like you keep putting it in and it's not coming up right. And that <laughs> has good. to be so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, that's, a, that's a good way to say it because I was going to say something perhaps a little bit- um, more like letting my own anger shine. So um, yeah, just know that if you're out there feeling these things, you're so loved, sending love to everyone that's been affected directly, indirectly um, by this and other similar issues. It's fucking tragic. And we're going to try to bring you a really fun podcast, uh, you know, in light of like to bring light when you might be feeling a little bit of darkness. We're going to go over so many cool things. We're going to go over strides. We're going to go over um, a bunch of cool things about racing on technical terrain. We're going to go through hydration. Um, a lot of really fun topics today. We're going to approach hydration similar to how we approached shoes last oh, yeah. week. I thoroughly enjoyed that shoes discussion. So oftentimes on here, if you've listened to us before, which I assume probably most people have, we bring a lot of positivity. We bring yeah. a lot of like science-backed facts and we did really none of that as we talked about shoes we just use it as a chance to shit on shoes yeah. and it was really fun <laughs> and kind of cathartic and so we're going to do that we're not going to shit on hydration quite so much yeah you don't want to get cholera yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever happens in that scenario um but yeah we will do some uh, shit talking on all of the hydration options out there and some um give some props too um but why are we recording on a monday megan i'm going to a conference this week I'm, yeah. I'm actually excited to go to a conference which is a change in my personality i think one reason is because so when i like put together my like research materials to present at this conference five months ago i had myocarditis i was like deep in the world of immunosuppressants and i was like there's no way i'll be going to an in-person yeah. conference so i decided to present it virtually which is great so <laughs> i'm going to a conference in which i'm our team actually decided to do a retreat. So now I'm like going in person to this conference, but I already presented virtually and I get to go just hang at a conference, which is pretty cool, but also not usually my cup of tea. Yeah. Well, it's a cool conference. It's the American college of sports medicine. Yeah, actually probably a lot of listeners will be there. I feel like we have a lot of like practitioners in the field, clinicians. So come say hi, if you see me there, Yeah, pretty sweet. We'll be the people with masks on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Those people, um, because, because of the immunosuppression, we're, we're still living like it's March, 2020 over here. I know those people and like still in N95s when no one else is and they're like what are you guys doing yeah it's kind of convenient though you know I've talked before about it's great for people with crooked teeth like me uh it's also great in these social settings which you know anyone that's been to a conference in any field understands the thing where there's a big room and everyone's milling about and there might even be some finger foods and you're like what the fuck do I do (laughs) um I've struggled with those types of social events ever since I was young I, I just don't know what to do I've seen other people that just effortlessly integrate themselves into circles of conversations and I'm like, that is witchcraft. How? What do you do? But that that picture that you paint is exactly the life of conferences, which is yeah. why I'm not a big fan of conferences generally. There's like so much networking going on. And I'm like, oh, I like networking like over email, over like in-person meetings. Networking at conferences to me is so daunting. So apparently in the environmental law world, I went to a, a bunch of those conferences, especially the ones down in like Louisiana and stuff where a lot of my work was in a couple in Alaska. And they were interested, you know, I was always asleep pretty early for the most part, not, not as much in Alaska because um, unfortunately going to the bars was one of the ways that you were supposed to um, uh, gain trust of some of the, the um, people we were working with. Um, but I heard that there's a lot of fucking at these conferences. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. That seems At least in the world. I, I guess for like the academic world, this is like the Olympics. Like okay, these conferences right. are like going to the Olympics where, and there is so much fucking at the Olympics. So I guess <laughs> that, that analogy, I guess makes sense. Yeah. 
I, it's probably at a Hilton or something. They should just give out condoms yeah. with like the, the, the conference entry. Yeah. yeah. Well, they can put them on bananas. So you're preventing cramps at a sports medicine conference while they're doing the sexual education. How wonderful is that? Um, but yeah, it, it reminds me of, um, you went to a conference in med school and I, I never thought I would meet someone that struggles in these social settings quite as much as I do. And then I heard about your story from going to a conference in med school. Well, actually, I don't know if I struggle. Like, honestly, I don't mind networking. Like, when okay. I get into doing it. I just hate doing it. Like, okay. I would just prefer not to do it. Like, I think I'm actually okay at it. Like, once once I, like, get forced into there, I'm like, ah, whatever. This is my destiny. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it. And I'm okay at it. I just don't like it. But in med school, I was, like, deciding which specialty I wanted to go into. And a lot of people gave me the advice to go. I was kind of interested in family medicine. And so... I, they were like, just go to this conference, like go talk to all the different like residency programs. It's yeah. actually like, if you plan to apply in family medicine, you, like, it's really important that you went to this conference, like on your resume, on your application. Yeah. And so I went, guess how many talks I went to in that conference? How many? Zero. Zero. I just went and I like networked <laughs> with the residency programs. And then I had so much work to do. Yeah. This was when I was like really busy coaching and researching. And I was like, God, like, you know, I could do, I could learn. I actually love learning. Like I love learning through podcasts, through YouTube videos, yeah. through all these other forums. I'm like, why would I go to a talk on something random right now? <laughs> so I went to a grand total of zero talks. You flew to, it was in St. Louis, I think. It was I in Kansas City, which Kansas is, City. oh God, yeah. Same, same shit, different, different state. And right, yes. Maybe. I can't even think right now. Yeah, Kansas. Yeah, it is. Same Kansas. state. Yes. Missouri. Yeah, Missouri. Yeah, it's, that's confusing. Kansas City is not in Kansas. I It took going to that conference for me to fully, <laughs> yeah. fully recognize that. And I hear they have shitty barbecue. Oh, shots fired. There's probably <laughs> some people listening right now that are uh, turning off the podcast. I actually love it all. So don't don't hold that against me. That's just a joke. Um, yeah. So flying all the way there and not going to a single talk is the ultimate swag introvert behavior i've ever heard but i, I checked the box which is the yeah. ultimate med student thing to do yeah and i didn't even apply actually this is at, at this moment when i went to this conference i like fully recognized i was like i do not want to apply in family medicine nor do i want to apply to any residency program <laughs> and it was actually this like deep moment of clarity for me yeah. and i came home feeling really refreshed and i was like not going to residency yeah it's like your moment of zen where you're just like ah uh, and you have the epiphanies I don't want to fucking network. Yes. This isn't for me. Not for me. Well, the other thing about conferences is you have to wear business casual clothes. Yeah. And I've been working remotely. So like business casual at best is on the top only. Yeah. And I had a little crisis because, you know, I'm growing this nice little handy dandy bump over here. <laughs> and I'm like fully opposed to buying business casual maternity clothes because I'm like never going to wear them yeah. that much. And so all weekend I've been like trying to find clothes in my closet that I can stump stuff this little bump into. Yeah. Have you been able to find those clothes? Because I, it's a, currently the size of a hedgehog i heard a baby um, hedgehog according to my app 17 yeah. weeks this week so baby is a nice little hedgehog cooking in there yeah it looks a little ridiculous but i've made it work and hedgehog. kind of uncomfortable i'm like doing like a little waddle in some of these skirts that just like <laughs> might constrict my blood flow there a little bit i think that's a good thing it's like compression socks but for your bump um hedgehog I feel like hedgehogs are just another rodent. I feel like they're just rats with good marketing. Especially baby hedgehogs. Yeah. Yeah, rats with little spikes on them. Yeah, they should just say, your baby's a rat. It's <laughs> yeah. what it is right now. Um, but yeah, so you have clothing options. You've been figuring it out. You've been working around this beautiful bump you have going. Like right now, I get to see it pretty pretty directly. You've got your bra on top. And then what are these tights? They look great. Oh, these are my old tights. There's your old tights? They're just like riding up a little? They're still working. But yeah. I did actually invest in maternity running clothes and that was clutch for people out there. So I got the Nike maternity shorts and mm -hmm. they, so there's like this little spandex. And um, I would say, I think it's like seven inch spandex and they have this like whole flap that comes up over your bump. <laughs> and I actually really like it. It's like a cocoon for in there. It's yeah. great. I feel like they'd probably be good for just about anybody, right? Like 
I mean, I always think that I would like something that rides up a little higher for me in general. And so maybe I should be wearing maternity tights. I mean, I do like them. It gets a little warm in there. Like it's creating like a warm cocoon environment. So I don't know how great they would be in summer. You can make them breathable though. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure. But the other thing, so I found, and this is like, these are not maternity clothes, but someone recommended this. And if you are looking for like short tights for women, these are amazing, whether you're pregnant or not. So it's the Nike, the Lululemon Align leggings. And they are so, typically I'm not like the biggest fan of Lululemon. Like they make like tight clothes that are like really tight and often see-through, but these tights are amazing. I have the six inch ones and they come Mm -hmm. with pockets and they're just like so stretchy and freeing and fun. And if you're looking for tights out there, they're great. Well, maybe after maternity, I can get all of these clothes. Well, actually that's what I'm planning to do. Okay. As I get bigger, just buy like, bigger clothes bigger clothing sizes than I normally would and just give it to you you need the clothes oh by the way you're sitting here right now in women's shorts that are like these are maybe three inches and I'm seeing like way more skin on you than I do <laughs> outside of really any moment other than other times yeah other than other times yes <laughs> when we're making like we're at a conference <laughs> yeah the, I'm actually wearing the rabbit basham shorts uh so those they're they're the um, Amanda basham shorts yeah. to give you clarity on where these are coming well from. Amanda basham she's mom of two she's one of the best athletes out there she's a total boss so I am representing the maternity like swag right now even though I'm not currently carrying a hedgehog myself um it's they're pretty wonderful I love them they're my sh- we're like flipping clothes right now I yeah. just I'm actually wearing these are your tights that I'm wearing actually oh. so we have fully clothing swapped <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool well maybe I can start wearing your crop tops because you have been wearing um I guess you got a crop top right before you found out you were pregnant and it has been your go-to shirt and it I love it because I can just see the, the little baby all day long and just come over and say hi. Um, so I feel like crop tops should be the like the fashion choice of maternity. It was the only clean piece of laundry I had the other day. So I put it on and I was like, I'm going to rock this. I felt a lot like Winnie the Pooh in it. Like, <laughs> the bump was just like coming out. But you know what? I, I wore it around. I, I was like, I'm just going to rock this with swag. Oh God. That's that's amazing. Winnie the Pooh, the pregnant Winnie the Pooh is a, quite a visual. It is, um, it is quite a visual. Yeah. You need a crop top with no, no under, uh, nothing on your bottom uh, needs to be the, what you wear in the gym at the conference when you're on the stationary <laughs> bike. Um, okay. So a little bit of a trend, a lot of a transition, actually. Um, I really wanted to mention before we get into some of the quick hitters, um, the workout Megan had me do today and a little bit of the reflection I was having during it. So, um, today's just kind of a secondary day for me. I usually take my rest days on Tuesdays when we record the podcast. And so Megan has turned these into heavy duty stride days today. She had me do 10 by 30 second Hills, um, for example, which is a lot of strides, like uh, especially at really fast paces as a lot of work. I, I've been giving this to athletes more and more after learning about the Norwegian training. It's a, yeah. it's a model where you're giving just higher volume um, neuromuscular and speed development. And it's a stealthy workout. Like yeah. I put strides on there and I'm like, this is actually like <laughs> a little bit of a secondary workout we're adding because especially at altitude, 30 second hill strides yeah. are a lot. Yeah. And I think swap, like our, our training methodology is known for strides. Um, but one place we have been cha- shifting a little bit is sometimes doing a higher volume of these types of strides, whether it's they're on hills or flats, particularly in a period where someone, an athlete isn't specifically training for tough choices. And so I was thinking why I was doing the, the last strides today. I was like on eight and nine and I was getting to 10 and I was like, you know, if I had even two more of these, it would probably be too much. I would start to have to pump my arms and sprint to get the same output. Um, and so I'm like, well, that probably is maximizing some sort of the physiological stress, particularly the musculoskeletal one, maybe neuromuscular too. Um, so the other reflection I was having is that, you know, I'm about to turn 34. It's 10 years after I won my first national championship, 16 years after I first started training really intensely, almost continuously since that time. And I feel like I'm still getting faster. 
And so it's very cool that like I've learned so much from you in this process and, you know, grown along the way, both as a coach and an athlete. So thank you. Well, I mean, I feel like you're really willing to try different things, which yeah. I like. And I think one of the things about sustaining, like, you know, being able to build and stack speed over 16 years of training is trying things that are slightly new within the same consistency framework. Mm. And you've been open to doing that just because I think we're, we're constantly thinking about our, our own training as yeah. like smaller experiments for the broader swap training logs. And I've been pleased that you've been willing to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, they say seven to 10 years is the amount of progression you get. Like there's some articles and stuff that say it, not studies, but you'll read that a lot in popular running literature. And I want to say that's bullshit. You know, I've been training as hard as a person can train for six, like at least 13 of those years, 14 of those years. And I'm faster today than I was then. And we have tons of athletes that are progressing into their forties, fifties and beyond. And so don't let those frameworks that you might've heard hold you back. It might mean that you have to change some things gradually, do it in an iterative fashion. Um, so high volume strides might be one of those places. If you've done strides in the past, like four to six of them, like we'll often do, think about cranking it up to eight or 10, uh, mix it up a little bit, really work on your speed. Because if you can develop that neuromuscular ability, no matter what your background is, I think you can get faster no matter how long you've been going at it. And it's fun. It makes you yeah. feel like, I think sometimes I've actually seen athletes sometimes have the hardest time motivating for easy runs. And when you know you have 10 by 30 second strides coming yeah. at the end of a run, it changes the context and like maybe you might add a, add a little ounce of motivation as you get out the door. So I think that helps. I love that. That's so true. Today I was struggling and you had tw it's 12 miles total on the plan. I was kind of tired. And I was like, well, if I do these strides, I mean, the strides ended up taking four miles or five miles total within the workout. So it was chunked it up and it was quite delightful and, um, you know, much easier to get through. The last thing about strides is oftentimes as athletes are building into like their bigger key trail races and some of these trail races have a lot of vert. I start doing more of a focus on hills for like mm. the main workout session. We've been talking on here about hill beasts yeah. in our Patreon episode. We talked a lot about the hill beast and variations of the hill beast. And that's a point where I actually give something like 10 by 30 second flat ground strides right alongside like the hill workout for the week. Cause uh, I think yeah, it yeah, helps, yeah. it helps reinforce like the flat ground and the smooth running economy mechanics while also enabling the athletes to still get in that big hill workout stimulus for the week. That's really cool. So you don't have to sacrifice the hill strength, the speed for the hill strength. That's, it's I, all I like there in one week. I do. That's what I've been doing a lot. Huh. Yeah. That's very cool. I'll have to, have to think about that and how, how I incorporate. I think I might do it by accident sometimes, but not quite in as specific of a planned way. I have a few athletes this week that have like 10 by 30 second flat ground strides on Tuesday and then the hill beast on Wednesday. Oh shit. And that's a really good combo. <laughs> oh dude, I'm dying for them. Um, do you have any of your, do you have your Western States type athletes, like your elite athletes that are doing hundreds do strides like right up into the race, like flatter strides, or does that kind of go away closer to the event? I tend to bring that away like 10, 10 days, okay. 10 to 12 days out from the event. I just don't think it's super necessary. I think, you know, you start running the risk of just like, recruiting more fast switch muscle yeah. fibers. I think strides are always ever so slightly an injury Definitely, risk yeah. and just not worth it heading into Western States because the, I don't think the payoff is huge 12 days out. Yeah. I wonder what the, what the exact like cutoff would be if we, it'd be very interesting if we could measure like protein expression in muscle fibers and learn some of what the, um, the tails on these adaptations Ooh, are, yeah. mm -hmm. um, because I imagine it's like a, it's a tricky balance to try to catch the tail so that you're not at zero but it's not any of the physical effects are long gone. So, uh, well, we'll get back to you on that. We're constantly learning. And I think it's one of the most fun things about coaching together, but separately. So like it's the, the same philosophy starting point sometimes, and then it evolves different ways and then comes back together because I learned so much from you along the way. And I think it's one of the reasons that our athletes are like crushing shit this year is like, I'm just getting to 
be next to the most brilliant person in the world and see what you do. Thanks. And we talk about this at dinner a lot. Yes. Which actually, I always like, there was one point in life where I was like, we talk about running too much. And now I freaking love it. I'm <laughs> like, let's talk about strides as we eat our double cheeseburgers. I'm here for it. Yeah. We sometimes we should have a double cheeseburger on the podcast because that would make oh, it. Oh, that'd be so fun. It would be a little too intimate. There'd be like sex noises coming out of us. And I'm really missing an IPA. The first time we have an IPA, uh, I'm going to record a podcast. It's going to be so fun. Are you going to be back to alcohol after pregnancy? Yeah, I didn't do alcohol for like eight months and then now that i'm pregnant i'm like i really want alcohol so i don't know i don't know what that is (laughs) yeah yeah. perhaps you're like why deprive myself anymore okay so uh some quick hitters after that training topic um the first is you might notice like if i notice if it seems like my brain is in a million different places right now it's because the cha-cha slide is in my head um so what is the cha-cha slide for those that don't know i think most people have probably heard it but there's probably some listeners that don't especially not u.s listeners the cha-cha slide is pure amazingness so I was first introduced to this in middle school and high school at yeah. dances. So they they would play the cha-cha slide at dances. And it's a song that basically gives you instructions on how to dance, yes. which is why I loved it. Because in middle, middle school and high school, I still hadn't owned my full sense of weirdness. And so like dancing, I was like, I'm not ready to be weird. I'm not ready to be funky. And when someone told me instructions on how to dance, I was like, sign yeah. me up. I can do this. So it's like right foot, two stomps. It stops. tells you exactly what to do. It's great. Yeah. But yesterday we were out on the trails and you were being like, you were just navigating so well. I was going to say you were like Magellan or Columbus, but those people have like really messed up as like humanity in fundamental ways for some yeah. people. So well, I think I, I'm yeah. not going to compare you. Who's an explorer that like hasn't fundamentally messed up humanity? Uh, the Vikings? Second, I, I don't know. Sorry. I put you on really the spot. Yeah. Maybe the Vikings. With secondary explorer, one of those Native American explorers, perhaps. I think the problem is, especially with the Western colonizers, the only way they get put in the history books is if they like destroy worlds and are like commit genocide, which is really fucked up when you think about it. It is really fucked up. So yeah. uh, I'm one of, perhaps I'm one of the explorers that isn't written about in his, the history books. Yeah, Maybe that's the best you're, way to you're think a no name explorer. We'll yeah. leave it at that. But but the way I was doing it, actually, this is a good uh, tip for people out there. Strava, if you use the maps function, if you have the um, premium account, if you click on maps and you open it, it has your cursor and it says which direction you're going with every single trail mapped, including the ones that are not um, actually on the trails or, or on the maps, like off trail sections. And so you can see even with three steps, which direction you're going. So it's essentially a built-in compass factor. So for those like me that get lost very easily and just lose your bearings, it makes you feel like you're freaking Magellan without the genocide. Okay, well, compared to me at baseline, you're freaking Magellan because my yeah. navigational skills are horrific. And I always used to get so frustrated with like Google Maps and especially with Apple Maps yeah. because it would take a long time to adjust which direction you were going. And so I'd be that like person walking around on campus. I would just like walk 100 yards in one direction <laughs> and like follow the little blue dot, be like, oh shit, this is the wrong direction. Yeah. Just like turn around and Strava prevents you from doing that. Yeah, so I was helping you this weekend. And, you said, and you said to the right, to like make right onto the trail and my brain immediately went to the cha-cha slide i was like to the right now (laughs) y'all and i was like i was like feeling it and so we turned on the cha-cha slide and we did it on the trail and it was the energy we needed and so what we're proposing right now is the cha-cha challenge uh on this podcast so we recorded a video you can go to mountain roach instagram on our patreon as well um, and you'll see Megan doing the cha-cha slide on the trails. And I think people can do it better. You did it great. I was really this impressed. Is my, this is my very, very first try. I haven't heard the cha-cha slide in at least six yeah, years. So it was I remarkable. Had like, I had a rudimentary memory of what was coming, and it was not always on point. And then they got to crisscross, yeah. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, my center of gravity is like way off. And I was like trying to crisscross going downhill. And that was Yeah, he was like, crisscross, crisscross. And then he was like, ah, what do I do? Um, but I think you did a valiant effort. I We made it into like kind of a funny video. Uh, it's a little bit silly. And I think that, uh, you know, it's a, it'd be a cool thing to see what people do if they're choreographing a little bit more. So if you do the cha-cha challenge, do hashtag cha-cha challenge and tag us in it and we'll be your biggest fans for life. Also, if you're pacing someone in like a hundred mile race and they're not feeling it, turn on the cha-cha slide. They might either like really freaking hate you yeah. or they might turn around the race because I was a little tired when we were doing the cha-cha slide and it like brought this revamped and new energy to our hike. It was actually really similar. So I think like two weeks ago, we were out hiking just in our backyard. It was like kind of almost like in the evening and I was a little bonked out. Yeah. Just really not feeling. You also got us lost in our own backyard. So <laughs> I was a little annoyed. You added like an extra mile onto our hike. I didn't have Strava. And you started talking about true crime. Yeah. And I was like lost for the next 45 minutes in this conversation and forgot about the fact that I was bonked out. So either true crime or cha-cha slide, great bonk prevention strategies. <laughs> I would go more to cha-cha slide. My only worry with cha-cha slide is I, I hadn't heard it in quite a long time. And I did notice that he says, five hops now, y'all. And five hops, that's a lot of hops. I'm kind of worried that someone has gotten a stress fracture from I the cha-cha slide. I was going to say, if you are at injury risk, do not hop five times. It even goes up to six. They are doing it endurance hops. It goes up to six? Yeah. Oh my God, that's a sacral stress fracture waiting to happen. Do not do the cha-cha slide unless you are, uh, you know, have good bone density. That is my big concern. This actually, this is totally random. This reminds me of Dance Dance Revolution. Oh. I love Dance Dance Revolution as a kid. I used to do it on concrete floors. And that was like a major, I actually got shin splints. I would do it like, <laughs> I, well, I think it was great for my field hockey skills. Yeah. I, was, I was pretty good at that game. And you actually got shin splints, right? Well, we were doing it in our basement on the concrete and you're yeah. like slamming into the, like the mat on the floor. And we had just the mat, not like the built up one. Yeah. And I got shin splints. Can we play video games with our kid? Oh yeah. Oh my God. Well, I we so play fun. video games now. I would. Well, I mean, yeah. Can we? Yeah. So we don't need to have a kid to play video games? No. Why don't we have any kid? We can just play video games for life. You don't need to have a kid. It's, actually, I'm going to hold up. We can, we can only play video games until we have a second kid. Oh, oh no. I gave up the game. She's negotiating again. Uh, also, I wanted to shout you out. You've been channeling that Rihanna pregnancy swag. Uh, we talked about your bumps, uh, you know, your outfits, how you're, how you're living it. Anyone out there, Google Rihanna pregnancy. She just had her baby. Every single photo of her is just like, owning it so hard she looks fly as fuck she has like decorated the bump she's got jewelry covering the bump she's found all these outfits and that's that's my pregnancy role model and i aim to channel that in everything yeah i'm not pregnant but i can channel pregnant rihanna i think we all can she is my president is rihanna <laughs> um, uh, and then some follow-ups on shoes first we we did a much deeper dive on the patreon bonus episode uh that we'll we'll talk about in a few minutes um but on good news, Megan found me another pair of Evo Speedgoats, the long lost discontinued shoe in size 10. Megan, I want to marry you again. Thank you. Well, this is, I actually can't take any credit for me. This is, this is our athletes. Some athletes I coach, Erica and John, yeah. they went to a, like a garage shoe sale at a, a, a shoe store and they were just sending me all these pictures of Evo Speedgoats in different sizes. And I was like, there's no way they have a 10. And then a 10 appeared in the picture. And I told you, and I'm pretty sure I made your weekend, your month, your year. Yeah. You were so excited. I orgasmed seven times <laughs> just right then. Um, so I'm really excited for that. Also, 
a couple of things we talked about in more detail on Patreon, um, but for everyone, the Saucony Exodus Ultra is about to come out. I tried them on right after the podcast recording last week, the, the formal podcast, um, and they are incredible on first run. Um, and they're getting amazing reviews. The athletes that we have that run for Saucony, particularly Katie and Adam, love them. I think this might be the shoe that rewrites the game a little bit. It's about to come out. Keep you updated on that. The other one is the Pegasus Trail 4. Um, which looks incredible and is about to be released, I think, early June. So keep your eye out for those two. I think both of these are exactly what we've been talking about, fast shoes that work on trails and have good support. So I'm really pumped. And they've totally overhauled the Nike Pegasus Trail. We were we were actually talking shit on the earlier models of the Pegasus Trail, saying yeah. it felt like running on stilts, um, calling it all different things. And the Pegasus Trail 4, they like saw that I mean, this, this shoe has been in the works for probably months and years, yeah. but they took that feedback and they ran with it. It looks so much better. And you've been like moderately obsessed with them. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure you like found a model from Nordstrom. Okay, that's okay. like an early release. Am I, I think I might have a problem. I this think you, I of, actually, I, kind of I'm how, glad you're admitting it. Yeah. I, I am pretty sure you have a shoe problem. I'm realizing it right now. This is kind of how, like if you watch like a documentary on people that have like drug addiction, this is how they go about getting their fixes. And you're like, why are you so committed to it? Well, I don't know if they're getting their fixes from Nordstrom. <laughs> well, that's true. But I was messaging uh, someone on Instagram that listens to the podcast. You're freaking awesome. Um, who lives in the UK. And they have peg fours already out there. And they were sending me them. And I was like, hey, hey can you like uh, mail them to the US? <laughs> and he was going to do it. Um, so th- I think I might have a problem. But fortunately, I did find them on Nordstrom. Granted, they're embargoed still. So I don't know how Nordstrom is sending them to me. This might be like, they might just not know what the fuck they're doing. I'm sure. Know. I'm sure they just like released the four and they're like, thought it was the three. They don't, they don't usually sell the stuff. They, like, people loved our shoe talk last week though. So maybe my problem will actually uh, help some people out there because I've tried literally every shoe and have pretty strong feelings. That means that our next uh, podcast topic should be chocolate checks. Chocolate checks and <laughs> shoes are where you're like only two problems in life exist. We did have a big Amazon package that was about the size of a hippopotamus show up at the door and Megan's just like, Chocolate checks. I got super excited and then I shook it and I was like, oh, God damn it, it's cereal. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I used to do a bunch of different cereals and I really narrowed it down to chocolate checks because I'm convinced uh, this shows how my performance brain works, that, that it's my only source of like serious iron and I rely on it for performance. So now, even if I'm not hungry, even if I've like eaten three pieces of pizza, I'm like, well, I have to have my chocolate checks because it's the only thing that's going to get my hemoglobin up. So, Thank you, Chakra Checks. Uh, you make the world go round. Rationalization is where it all starts. <laughs> yes. Every time I have Chakra Checks, I orgasm eight times, <laughs> even more than the Speak Out Evos. In other amazing news, mm-hmm. our Patreon community online is freaking amazing. It's so good. So for those that didn't listen, we launched a Patreon last week, and we're launching the Patreon as this big, grand experiment. Um, we got a lot of really cool feedback about people that understand the business and media worlds. Um, and basically, our d- idea is that we need to start taking control a little bit of what we put out there. Like, I don't know if Toronto is going to be an option long term. Hopefully, it is. Um, but there's other things, too, that we'd really love to do in this world. Um and I think the only way to do that anymore is through the subscription model. So patreon.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. We've been blown away by the, the community there. It's so cool. It's so amazing. I think we just want to create and then also someday help other creators create and yeah. do so without limitations. And I think Patreon is a great place to get to do that. And we've already gotten to engage. So we have like a little like amazing, actually it's big at this point, amazing community forming on there where we get to interact with our Patreon subscribers. Um, we have, we did a post on Friday that was like, share 
Warrior wins. And yeah. it was heartwarming on Friday to go through and read everyone's wins for the week. That was yeah. super cool. And there's already a bonus episode on there. So we're going to be doing weekly bonus episodes, which is 30 minutes. Um, Megan framed it perfectly that if this is a dinner table conversation, those 30 minute bonus episodes are hot tub conversations. Uh, we just, we get real intimate on those conversations. We do actually, we do less prep for that podcast, which I actually think is, I mean, it's just our raw, like, and this podcast is itself is like very raw and authentic. We just, we want to do a little prep to make sure we have like accurate science, accurate facts on here. And we do the same with that, just a little bit less. And yeah. so it's kind of like, it's a fun banter between us. So and if you join, you can already get the bonus episode. It's a separate feed. So um, you'll be getting those every week. We're going to be doing a lot of like quick hitter race recaps of, you know, interesting things that happen out there. We're going to be doing lots of experiments. Um, but one warning, it bills on the first of the month. So oh, good point. careful with when you subscribe. You can also do an annual billing and it won't matter. Um, but it'd be kind of like awkward if you join on like the 30th or 31st and then it bills you again on the first. I'd be like, what the fuck is this scam all about? I am not about this game. Um, so yeah, we, we love you all. Patreon.com slash swap. Uh, we're looking to do some really cool things in the future. And if you listen to that first episode, it is a situation in which you successfully changed your mind, my mind. Oh, so we had a little bit of a debate on prototype shoes being used in trail races, especially like at Western States and whether those prototype shoes should be made commercially available on the market. And this is happening. These restrictions are happening more in road running. And then we see parallel restrictions in cycling. Yeah. And you see, successfully changed my mind on the podcast i don't know if that's happened on like this like <laughs> this larger podcast yet because we both come in with a lot of research and you changed my mind it was good i yeah nine times orgasming right there <laughs> no it's never gonna happen again um okay uh transition to seth freaking ruling um who is this amazing athlete who won the maxi race 85k this really hard mountain race in europe um, that many of the best athletes ever have done over time. Um, it also, also sounds a lot like a tampon. It does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's really it's really the ultra beast of tampons, the way to describe it. <laughs> I was sorry. I was sitting here. We haven't discussed this before. Yeah. I was sitting here and I was like, what a name for a race. Do they have ultra beast tampons? I mean, not ultra beast. So they definitely have maxi. Okay. Well, Spartan Spartan Racing needs to make an ultra beast tampon. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That'd be really good. It would also really encourage healthy menstruation, which is positive. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so. We want, I want to talk a little bit about winning races in Europe because I think often U.S. runners are they're described as like oh well they're not great at mountain racing you're just, they're kind of like road runners that do trails or whatever and it's like bullshit. Um, Seth, for example, is an incredibly fast road runner who went over to Europe and wins a terribly hard mountain race and he wins it by a half hour. And the the point isn't to say that like this is every American runner or this is um, you know like always going to happen. The point is to say, I think a lot of that um, narrative is just wrong. And it's a matter of a little bit of specific training, being used to the trails and, you know, putting yourself out there. Otherwise, like, you know, US runners are just as equipped to go over overseas and rock it. And I think in coming years, we're really going to see that. I think historically, though, you are getting to a point where like, you look at American men, American women at UTMB, and they don't necessarily have the performances that you would like based on statistics, like based off of looking at like the collective whole, as you would expect. And I think like the trails are unique, the trails are challenging, but I think this, I think lots of data points recently prove that you can train for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the women have rocked it for Americans. That's true. Yeah. Men, men a little bit yeah, less. So, been stopped, yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, I think that there's probably some really cool physiology there with um, fatigue resistance and particularly on very, very steep trails when it involves hiking and stuff that I guess Seth is so strong that in 85K, he can still run and US men have been successful at CCC in similar races, um, like at 60 miles, they've really just started to struggle at hundred miles. So um, maybe there's something that plays out 
you know, in physiology a little bit longer, that's tougher on some of the American men, but I still call bullshit because part of it is I want to challenge the men, the American men listening that, yeah, you can go over to Europe and rock it like Seth did. Um, without this, you know, I think part of it is because the narrative becomes a, fulfill, a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. People go over there thinking it's going to happen, and then it does. Um, and so my favorite thing of all was the the second place runner who's French. Uh, he wrote an Instagram post. I, I couldn't, obviously, I don't can't read French, but I translated it, and it said, the devilish American slams us. Uh, and I'm sure the original French is quite beautiful, but to me, that was a wonderful uh, translation. I love that Google translation. Also, Seth isn't quite devilish. He yeah. is the, chul- the like chillest, most funny cucumber in the world. Like, yeah. I am Seth. Seth actually reminds me a lot of Drew, and they're good friends. And I feel like they're just like low key crushers that go in like like annihilate races. It's really yeah. impressive. It's so cool. And um, <laughs> before we get to some of the specific training takeaways about rocking in Europe. Um, the, the first thing is that he said he ran away on the first climb. He like, ran away from some of the other racers and he ran away at sub like at five forty minutes per mile, great adjusted pace. So it was quite fast in such a long and tough race, uh, because he didn't want to get poked in the eye by their poles. Oh my God. The poles are yeah. the worst. I don't know if you, if, if anyone's like run a race with poles and like, like tight crowds, it's like getting spiked at track races. Yeah. It's really not fun. I have a general policy of scruples, like I'm not about poles for, for my athletes, for, for almost anyone. I'm just not a big fan of polls. I think your greatest joy when you coach is to read me training law comments that you write that are some iterative process of fuck polls. Yeah. And you have like, you've, you've done this like time and time again, that you basically tell your athletes like never to use polls. I just go above and beyond with my thing because like, I like to be funny and log sometimes. So an athlete that I have a good relationship with this week asked me about whether you should use polls, particularly for Leadville for over Hope Pass, which is a little steep part on that course. And I was like, polls are for fascists, <laughs> which is not true. Obviously, it's making light of a, of a, of a serious thing in the US right now. Um, but the, the broader point is that like, I think there's very few races where they are effective. I think there are some for sure. I think UTMB, UTMB hard rock for hard sure. Hard rock, definitely. Um, but often I find athletes that are quite fast or athletes that um, just have a lot of variables and they look to control some of them default to using polls. And then they, after the race, they're like, I wish I didn't do that. It just kind of took me out of the flow. The people that excel with polls often are skiers, have a lot of experience with, um, especially Nordic and, or, um, schema, um, or train with it a ton. And my problem is if you train with them a ton, you're going to have to adjust the way you run to accommodate polls, which I worry will slow you down. So, you know, like when Claire won CCC, she wasn't using poles. Well, CCC, I think is a little bit different. It's shorter. Yeah. And the, the course is like a lot less gnarly than UTMB. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you have slightly different views I on have, polls. I have I slightly do. different views on polls. So I would say like, I think as we think about, I mean, I, I would very few races in the US, I would recommend polls. I think yeah. Hard Rock, very clear example of where polls are helpful. UTMB, very clear example. CCC, I'm kind of neutral on. Yeah. I would say like top five men and women probably should not use polls at all. I think I have a little bit, I think athletes that are like not in that top five position, I think if you can train with them, I give, instead of doing like tread hill doubles yeah. for athletes who are planning to use polls, I give like, I give doubles that are just pole based. So go out and do a 60 minute hike in the afternoon with poles and then use them once on long runs um, or like once on the weekends, yeah. um, ideally on that like Sunday slow day. And I think that combination is nice because it keeps athletes from getting slow, but it also allows them to get used to like the neuromuscular and different biomechanical like stimulus required to actually use the yeah poles. and this especially i mean the studies out there do say that uh you get an economy benefit from using poles if you know how to use them on uphills in specific moments my worry is that if you distribute that over a long training cycle an athlete would just slow down so much that they're even if their economy is a little better than it is with without or with poles rather than without 
if they had never trained with poles in the first place, they would just be faster. Um, so that's why I always say to athletes is like, Hey, we'll talk about that later. In the meantime, just get fast. And then we'll, it'll all, uh, even out. Well, I also feel like in some sense, it's like a tool they have in their toolkit. It's yeah. like bringing out the cha-cha slide at, slide at mile eight <laughs> when things are tough. You're like, it's something new. So like when things are hard, you're like, my quads are hurting. I'm just going to bring out the poles. It's something new. And I feel like that change in stimulus by itself is like a mental boost. That's enough. Like, even if there's like marginal performance benefit, that mental boost makes a difference. Yeah, it's so true. And I, I mean, I guess like the studies is my, I love to be driven by science and the studies do say poles help. So, you know, maybe I should soften. Also, my they're lighter than bit. you think too. Yeah, I mean, true. I've used poles when I was like coming back from handspring surgery. I actually might use poles hiking now as like my center of gravity is a little off <laughs> and we're going down some like steep stuff. Poles, poles could help. So I might be doing some pole training. Yeah. Actually, I was thinking about that. We did a uh, long family hike on Sundays. Like that's what we're doing. I'm not, I'm not running on Sundays and we're, we're hiking or running or, or hiking or doing light activity together. And my heart was breaking a little bit there because we're going up a steep climb and you know, we're all about, because we're not about, uh, because I'm not about the poles as much. Megan is also not hugely about them relative to other coaches. We're all about the hiking form. It's like, okay, if you don't have poles, you really need to focus on the form. You need to be using your arms kind of like poles and um, you know, in front of your body. And she was going up a steep hill and had her hands behind her back on her hips. Uh, you know, just like that chill position. And it almost broke my heart. It made me so sad. I was like, Megan, that's not the hiking form we like. You're like, what were you doing? Well, I was just counteracting. I need some ballast yeah. to counteract the fact that I have this like weight in the front. It was actually really helpful. Yeah, no, it is, it is great. Um, yeah, so maybe the next challenge after the cha-cha challenge though can be the pole challenge where people use their their poles as like stripper poles <laughs> while they're going around or even a tree. I think we have a lot of potential here. This is the main reason to use them at CCC and UTMB. So you can do fun things with them. Yeah. But also I do think it makes sense. Like invest in light collapsible poles that yeah. fit into your pack really well and get used to that. Um, I think like the really clunky cheap ski poles are not worth it. Like if you're going to use them as an athlete, like invest in light ones, because if you're going to be carrying them for a hundred miles, it's worth it. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I'm making a black and white on the podcast because it's more interesting way to talk about it with, but you know, I think what I say with athletes in reality for the most part is if you train with poles and you like them and they make your runs more fun, race with them. That's great. But if you train with them and you kind of don't like it, you can get by at all these races oh, without totally poles as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's one of those middle ground things. Okay. So back to Seth, um, a few training takeaways. I want to say that even when you're training in Europe or racing in Europe, speed still wins, you know, Seth went into this race. And if they had decided on the start line that it was going to be a 10K, he would have been in 10K life PR shape, which is extremely fast for this guy. So, um, you know, that's what you want. And don't lose sight of that. And that's actually what you said earlier about doing strides the day before the Hobies is a fascinating way to balance that out, that you can use strides even while you're training in the mountains to maintain that level of speed. Another way that I balance that out too is really doing a vert focus on the weekends. So like real vert focus heavy yeah. on the weekends. And then until four weeks until race day, mixing in speed as like part of the main workout stimulus for the week. So not having so much of a focus on vert on the weekdays and saving that for the weekends. And then with four weeks left to go, that's when you work yeah. in like the hill beast, like consistently, like, you know, I would typically work that into a, a, a workout routine, like, you know, every three weeks, not necessarily the hill beast, but like a hill workout every two weeks, every three weeks, but then saving that, like the big hill focus for the four weeks before race and four I, to six weeks i love that so much i think weekends like we we the science of downhill running there's a ton of great studies on this that the adaptations are don't need to be reinforced constantly and i think sometimes when people chase weekly vert they're missing the fact that the body doesn't give a fuck the body's operating usually on much quicker time scales with downhill adaptations in particular some studies find that like you can even spread them out by three weeks let alone weekly so what megan has really driven home with me that i really like is 
the weekend can be vert camps. And Seth did that, for example, like two weeks before this race, he did a 22, 18 back to back on the weekends. And I think on the 22, he had 6,000 feet of climbing and on the 18, he had five or 6,000, it's 12,000 feet. The rest of his week is pretty much flat because he works a really busy job and he's not going in, into the trails too much in that time. And so that's something like, even if you're doing really vert heavy races, you can be a weekend warrior with vert and then use your weeks to stay fast. And, and, I, and just in the very end, uh, get a little bit more specific. And I think that's actually ideal. The other thing I actually put down on the outline is all caps talent <laughs> yeah, to true. describe. I mean, this devilish American Seth, he is so talented. And I think that's another key part in like going over to Europe and performing well is you also have to have the raw talent too. And he very clearly checks that box. Yeah. He's one of the most talented people in the world. Actually, when Drew, um, said has seth reached out to you because they're really good friends and so this is through drew is seth on the team he's like yeah david you know i think seth might be like the best guy in the world <laughs> and, and he I, said that so casually yeah so casually drew just knows everything he's a, a deity um and he brought in another deity uh one other thing that i think actually does apply particularly in europe is in american men do a little bit less and this could explain part of it is slow days on your feet. That doesn't necessarily even mean runs. Seth does a lot of, he did a lot of skiing, like very, very low level skiing, very low level biking, hiking, um, some really, for him, very slow runs. Like it's okay to really slow down sometimes. I think, especially on Sundays, especially on your off, like your chiller days, um, go out there and go pure adventure pace, which can mean like, imagine you're training with someone who's 5k is 10 minutes per mile or 10 minutes slower than yours. Like it's okay to go that type of effort. I think that might actually bring out the best, especially when you're in these events that require comfort in the mountains. And he's also a nurse and does high yeah. volume shift work. And I have a few nurses that do that. And I'm like, this is stealth. Like working the seven to seven shift is stealth ultra work because you're on your feet. Like, you know, it's not always like the easiest conditions working there. And that actually pays off. In yeah. Training. I actually yeah. think Seth is going to be, you know, I, I don't want to, I hope he continues to do what's fulfilling for him, but I think he's going to be one of the best coaches in the world as well. Yeah. His knowledge of training theory is outstanding. He's pushed me in ways that have made me grow a ton since, since, um, started working together, like, I guess four ish months ago now, um, right after Buck Canyon. So, um, yeah, hell yeah, Seth, hell yeah. Everyone out there that's going into uncomfortable places. Don't let narratives hold you back. Americans can win at UTMB and whatever is holding you back, you can do that thing too. Okay, so a follow-up on the nutrition discussion that we had last week. This was on um, being aware of the origin points of maybe any type of dietary restriction, um, whether it's ethical-based vegetarianism, gluten-free, anything like that, and uh, whether it might be tied to um, a time in your life where your context with your health was a little bit different. And associations with restrictive eating. And we went into this conversation. This is a conversation that's like really not talked at all about like in the nutrition world or not enough, I would say, in the yeah. nutrition world or even like in the sports performance world. And it's a little bit of a taboo topic. And we were both worried. We were like, I, we really want to talk about this and talk about this well in a way that makes people feel loved, but also to bring light to a topic that I think is important. And we were overwhelmed by the number of responses that we yeah. got back. And I, I hope it means, I mean, we talked about it. I don't know if we talked about it well, but we did talk <laughs> about it. And I, I hope that it like created this environment where people are thinking about it just a little bit more. Yeah. And so as always, you are loved wherever you are. Um, and I'm sure there's people out there that it did not resonate with that hated it and just didn't email. So thank you for not emailing. Yes, we definitely, it's definitely <laughs> a very heavy selection bias in who emails us. But um, we got some great ones. And I wanted to read one in particular, just because if you're out there in that hit any type of nerve in any way, um, just know that like, you know, I think that the individual experiences can be so um, unique. So do you want me to read it or should you? You got it. <laughs> awesome. I'm so pumped. Uh, so this email is absolutely beautiful and um, touching. Wow. Your last podcast just hit me so hard, but in a really important way. 
I was vegan for three years and have been mostly vegetarian since I gave up on complete veganism earlier this year, uh, which I gave up when encouraged to do so by those around me who supported my recovery. I've been leaning more and more heavily into being fully vegetarian again, and even trying to be more completely plant-based because of my feelings about climate change and ethical arguments. One of the things you said in the podcast this week just hit me like a punch to the gut, to look back at where it started. I went vegan completely cold turkey out of nowhere and never had a single slip up for three years without any prior significant interest in animals or the climate. The, the time that I started being vegan was in the extreme depths of an eating disorder, and the disorder was unequivocally the cause. While I've learned since then about the ethical and environmental components, and I do believe in them, I know that for me, it all came down to being in control. Being vegetarian slash vegan feels safe. It feels like I'm being, quote, good. It gives me some sense that I still have control over my eating while I'm being pushed to challenge so many other restrictive behaviors. It quiets one of the many loud voices in my head. It gives me one last safe choice on the menu. But I can't give it into that if I ever want to fully recover because it makes it so much easier to concede one more safe choice and then another and then another. And I want to be free. Sorry for basically dumping a journal entry on you. I just want to thank you for giving me the push for self-reflection and let you know that what you spoke about this week meant a lot to me and I'm sure many others. I've been listening since episode one and this podcast has really been a safe space and helped rewrite the narrative around food that I've had for so long. Many, many thanks. That's a beautiful email. Also, David, good job on reading that. I feel like I your your narration is spot on. But I think the the part that really hit me was the the part that I want to be quote unquote good. Yeah. And I think that that stems from that place of control as she was as she, this person was writing about. But also I think, you know, I've seen that with ethical veganism or these other points of like how hard it is to be quote unquote good and what that means to different people. Yeah. And the good we're living in such a complex world. I mean, a little bit related to some of the things we started to talk at the top of the podcast, like the world is collapsing around us at times and we're one drop in a humongous bucket. And whether it's, you know, talking about gun rights or climate change or any of this, these other issues, like we want, we see the world, we want to change it. We want to be positive. We want to be forces for good, but there's not that much difference we can make. And so we seek out ways we can. Right. And, you know, um, I, I totally admire veganism and mm-hmm. it's something, obviously I've had my own journey with it. And I just want to point out that your health should come first. We're going to a listener corner at the end of this episode is going to be on the same topic. And it is absolutely beautiful. Um, and just know that like, it's okay to, you know, even as the world collapses around you to have fun, to enjoy fun foods, to make yourself happy, to do things that, you know, are meaningful to you. That doesn't need to mean that you need to eat meat. Um, but if not eating meat is negative for your health, even understanding the broader context, um, you know, have some, I think, it, I think it, you know, even if you've been doing this for a long time, I think it's important to think about why you started because, um, these issues run deep and it applies to, you know, a lot more than, you know, like, whether we can change the world or not. And we've seen some athletes go through that journey too. And it's truly like one step at a time. Like, yeah. I think it's really hard to go from a place like this to just like eat a double cheeseburger one night. Yeah. And that's and it's, right. Not healthy. Either. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it's about really easing into it. And we've seen athletes that have done well with that. And it's been something that's been empowering to them as like a form of like, you know, pushing back against some of the restrictive control thoughts they have. Yeah. Yeah. And stay in touch with your health. Like if, if there's no health issues whatsoever, great. It's awesome for you. It's, you know, there's a lot of different things that it might be fully positive. Um, but you know, we see a lot of the, the reverse side. Um, so, uh, kind of related to nutrition, athletic greens promo. Uh, I was in the training logs this week yeah. and one of my athletes, uh, listened to the podcast and took athletic greens and was blown away. But, and this was an amazing quote that she wrote in her training log. 
Oh, also, you guys have convinced me to try this green grass vitamin juice. <laughs> Tastes like a liquidized Flintstone chewable vitamin, <laughs> but the HRV effects are absolutely bonkers. It's only been two days, but my HRV, which normally sits around 50 on a good day, 30 on a bad day, shot up to 102 last night. Holy cannoli, what is this food magic? Holy cannoli is right. Yeah, we've seen that HRV response in a number of different athletes. Also, liquid, liquidized Flintstone chewable vitamin is exactly the taste. Like that is, it's a hundred percent the best description I've ever heard. Well, that's a big honor. I loved Flintstone vitamins as a kid. Like what? I was obsessed. The orange ones were so good. I would get really excited. It would be like the, like I equate Flintstone vitamins to like gummy vitamins where I get excited to have them. Okay. That's weird. And also like grape cough syrup. I'm weird. Robitussin. Yeah. I well, love that stuff. Grape cough syrup. I believe that's scissor yeah, or whatever. Yeah, exactly, if you yeah. mix it with some, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's a little different. But well, that's not why I liked it. I like the taste. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't put Flintstones in like a thing of, no, you know... I was not grinding up Flintstones and seeing what happens. Oh, shit <laughs> yeah so um uh, athleticgreens.com slash swap swap uh we've seen wild responses pretty much across the board um i would say at least half of our athletes including a lot of the pros that you hear about on the podcast are taking it now um really big fans i think that it is one of the best things and honestly here's here's another one of those weird promos for it so last wednesday i had a really early workout um because i had a Cairo appointment with this magical healer and bowler Boulder um, named Larry Frieder. And so I didn't take it that morning because I was like, I, I just wanted to be more careful with my stomach just because it was like a really, really quick turnaround. And uh, that day, so I had a great workout. And I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. And then I'm on the Cairo table and have a severe groin cramp as he's doing the most important adjustment for me. And I had a cramp now ever since I started taking it. It was the first cramp I've had. Is that because I forgot athletic greens? It was pretty much, it was very embarrassing and I didn't get that perfect adjustment I needed. It was very sad. Well, when you get a cramp, you really go like full body torture. It's like <laughs> like something, the first time that I experienced you having a cramp, I was like, what is happening? Do I need to take him to the hospital? When was the first time you experienced me having a cramp? Are you, you can fill that in. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, before athletic greens, I would ever so slightly, sometimes after hard training days, have um cramps in the bedroom <laughs> often actually well i was really impressed because i mean it's like it's not the easiest thing in the world to go like run 22 miles and then do that kind of fun stuff <laughs> and you were doing it so like you know i was respecting the player like you, yeah. were, you were stepping into the game and i was really pleased <laughs> but it's like you you're really dramatic and so i'd be like it actually like legit scared me yeah. and then the the really funny part actually was is like that happened once and i was like oh my god what's wrong with you and you're like my toe is cramping and i was like it's your toe <laughs> yeah it, i was worried i killed you it reminds me a little bit i feel like it needs a david Attenborough narration like if david Attenborough was narrating it as if it were planet earth <laughs> he would like say and now the mating call from the boulder mail <laughs> and it would all make more sense but unfortunately uh not like that at all but you also stay in the game when it happens too oh yeah that's like wildly remarkable physiology because like i'm sure when you're cramping like everything is designed just to to not work that's probably true like you know like it really like really gets like your i don't know it gets your nervous system know. it gets all these different things let's think about it evolutionarily let's do an anthropology breakdown here so if the cramp is indicative of death which my cramps often feel like and i make sure make them sound like you really just want to go out on top you know, yeah you well no. evolutionarily i think that when it happened i was on bottom but no i think evolutionarily you would want to pass on your genetics exactly. to the next you generation want to go out on top. as you're dying so you know it, it's still it's still seems to make sense um do you want to do an awkward transition now to uh you know a somewhat more serious topic actually this might be a spot-on transition oh i don't know i'm gonna to have to hear why you're saying this is a transition sex uh, hormones okay perfect i like it very very brilliant uh to the follow-up on shelby Houlihan, who um but last year before the olympic trials um she got a doping positive for nandrolone 
Um, long back and forth with burritos. You probably remember us talking about it or have heard about it. Um, she finally lost her appeal in, in final. She so, fought it pretty heavily. Yeah. yeah. And she has a four-year ban. Uh, the reason I wanted to mention it, one, so the final lost the appeal. She wrote something beautiful on Instagram, but also a world-class athlete who I don't coach reached out to me, just sent a screenshot of her Instagram that said, uh, you suggest you follow, um, Shelby Houlihan because you follow mountain roach. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, Instagram knows that I feel compassion for Shelby. <laughs> I, I feel a lot of compassion actually for Shelby. I mean, I strongly think the burrito story has so many flaws and yeah. so many holes in it that I'm just not buying it. But it's, I think life has an interesting like place where you can be in contradiction. Like I am like pretty sure the burrito story does not hold true. And I am assume like that means that like this must be a positive, but I also hold compassion for the fact like she has handled this about as beautifully as a human could handle something. Yeah. And like we all make mistakes in life. And I think rebounding from mistakes is what like is a true judge of character. And she's done that so well. Yeah. like she's still out there she is running times with a like hand stopwatch and yeah. running really fast times on the track just for the i imagine at this point the heck of it well that's one of my favorite things about yeah. you is that you find compassion for everyone even at their lowest point like you've done this recently with like people that have even committed murder you've been like well you know but there have to be ways that we can redeem them and it's so it's so i don't know if that's a good thing no no megan it's the best it's that's <laughs> that's like the ultimate teaching of like spiritual learning and you know i think there's so much like ver urge for vengeance and this you know righteousness that we all want to feel because it feels good but what good does it do and so i mean we both agree with shelby's ban she should definitely be banned for four years but at the same time, I think we urge compassion for her and love for her, just like you would love anyone um, as she goes through this. I, I think the complicating factor here is the burrito excuse. The burrito excuse it's such is bullshit. It's so poor. Yeah. And it's I like, mean, that's, that's what I struggle with. I feel like, I don't know. My bet is that she like took some supplement that was contaminated and they like don't know how it got contaminated. Well, who knows? It could have been a, mas a masseuse writing something on her. There's a lot of different things. But once you said the burrito and like went all in on that, I'm sure uh, with lawyers telling you to do that. They went all the heck in yeah. on the burrito. Yeah. And it's like, it becomes a major problem because if you just said, I don't know or whatever, um, it becomes a, there's a much more, I think, understanding that, oh shit, she doesn't know. Like that's happened before. It makes some sense. When I was also going to say a lawyer is probably heavily pushing this burrito. Maybe. But, you and you know, know it's, it's super tough now. I think that if there's ever a tell-all book, maybe we'll have egg on our face um, for saying compassion. But, you know, I, I think it gets back to like, thinking about who your enemies are in life in general or who you disagree with and try to have some compassion for that individual. Maybe not the systemic issues, you know, like there's a lot of shit going on that is much bigger than in any individual, but like whatever brought the individual to that point, like try to put yourself in their shoes, even if it seems unimaginable. Like we could all imagine, imagine if you're a pro athlete and a massage therapist or someone puts a cream on you without you knowing, not to say that that happens often, it might never happen, but it is a possible theoretical thing. And um, you know, it's just, it's, it's tragic to think about her career going this way. Um, and lots of love for her, even as we say she should be banned and uh, I think, unequivocally. As I sit here and think about it, actually, there is one interesting thing. I think for me, it becomes harder though. Like it becomes very easy for me to have compassion for Shelby because yeah. she's like, only tangentially related to like the field that we're in. Yeah. I think the closer and closer and closer you get to situations like this, like I imagine people who directly competed against Shelby, it's probably a lot harder to hold that compassion. For sure. For sure. But I think it's still really important, but I think it takes more time to like work towards that. And I think it's just something to like acknowledge in life. Yeah. And there's a lot of unstated shit that we don't know. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. No, and I think it comes from a place of privilege to even be able to offer compassion in some of these instances. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. And 
yeah, so I don't know. Maybe the message of compassion needs to be tempered with a little bit of little bit of righteous anger. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think a combo of both. A combo of both. Also, righteous anger because sometimes fun. It is really fun. You know, that is actually righteous anger is I think an emotion that I could perform really well off of yeah. when layered with like compassion and swag and like these different things. But some of that I feel like can go a long way. Maybe on the bonus Patreon episodes we should have some righteous anger segments. Oh my gosh! Where yeah. we where we really go all out because like you know. We, we, I hope we live a lot of love in real life, but on the podcast, we're all about love because like, that's really the us that we like lead the most when it's just us. We do lead with a little bit more anger sometimes. Especially when it's directed towards the Hoka carbon rockets. <laughs> yeah. We did not bring any, we brought a lot of righteous anger towards those shoes. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's quite true. Um, and this is a segue into something that is, I think, more important and a place where, um, you know, maybe our voices have some uh, like ability to push it over time. And this is the UTMB rules on um, drug. I guess I don't even know if you would call it doping. Um, I think it's yeah. I think it's kind of like an expansion of WADA, which is yeah. an anti-doping code. So and I'm not even sure exactly where it stands now. So these rules applied last year. The on their UTMB website it says 2022 regulations, and this is important because it's not just UTMB. Obviously, like UTMB. It's starting to own the trail running world to a certain extent. UTMB for... is going full Amazon on the trail running world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're buying up everything. We need some antitrust investigation on uh, UTMB. Um, but I, as on their website, they have 22 regu- 2022 regulations, and it has the same rules as last year, um, which is essentially going above the World Anti-Doping Code and adding things that are a little bit or a lot uh, questionable, I think, from a scientific perspective. And I, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts both as a doctor or coach. Well, I think athlete. it's egregious from a medical perspective. So I think there's they're really like firing away at TUEs, so therapeutic use exemptions. And a lot of athletes have TUEs for valid medical conditions, yeah. in which if they didn't have a TUE, they would have significant health concerns. And I think that's probably the case for like 98%, 95% of TUEs. And then there's another like two to five percent of TUEs, I would guess, just yeah. off like the top of my head, that are being used for like performance ill intent. So someone is like taking an inhaler or taking a, a glucocorticoid and they're doing it purely for performance gains and not for a health issue. And that's a problem, but I think it's not in UTMB's jurisdiction to try and poke at that two to 5% when it could like significantly harm the like 95 to 98% that actually rely on these medications for health concerns. And I guess one of my problems is, okay, so if we're like legislating TUEs through this system that is not exactly rigorous scientifically, um, why exactly? Because the athletes that are going to get a really, really beneficial TUE for their performance, just for their performance, I, I don't even know the examples of that. I'm, I'm not well-versed enough in that area. They could also just microdose EPO. Like, and it's probably the same amount of work for them. Um, so what are we actually legislating here? So the, what are the rules exactly? Um, the let, athletes might not know them. Yeah, let's break this down. So within 60 days before the start of competition, you can't have an IV iron infusion. And I understand this to some extent because IV iron infusions, yes, can be used for performance gains in some athletes that perhaps don't need them for medical conditions. But we have coached athletes with ferritin levels of one. Yes. And those are like, and oftentimes when that happens, actually, there's not a clear reason as to why an athlete is losing iron. Like there can be really like weird reasons for why athletes are losing iron and they're losing them, like losing iron, like consistently to a point where they require iron just to get through the day. And and it can be so severe sometimes that, um, this affects, like, they're not getting back to like, I've never heard of it. I, I, maybe, maybe I'm just not well-versed enough in it, but 
everyone that has this issue, they're getting back up to a hemoglobin of 12, not a hemoglobin of 17. Exactly. Like, it, yeah. This is people that like you're surprised can even walk, let alone run. Um, and so you're, you're starting to legislate people that have serious medical conditions without exception. Like there is no exception for it. That's really tough. Okay. And then within seven days before the start of competition, um, they ban IV infusion, gas inhalation, all glucocorticoids, regardless of the mode of administration and thyroid synthesis hormones, except in the case of partial or total removal of the thyroid or hypothyroidism and medical origin. Plus all TUEs, every single TUE. Yes. I really struggle with a lot of this. I think glucocorticoids right now are on my mind. I, I have worked with athletes that are on long-term glucocorticoid therapy. So these are things like prednisone, um, for conditions like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, such as ulcerative colitis. I was actually today, this week is my last, I've been on freaking prednisone for five months with my, my autoimmune stuff. And today I took one milligram and tomorrow I will take zero and it's going to be such a celebration. No more prednisone, but I coach athletes who have had long-term glucocorticoid therapy and they can't compete. Yeah. And I mean, it just introduces a bunch of like, we're essentially saying, well, if you're not healthy enough, you're not good in a race. And there are obviously, I mean, they wouldn't do this if no one was abusing it. And I think from what I understand, some of these suggestions came from people that understand the world of professional cycling. Um, he, knowing a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes and some of the individuals involved. And that probably means that in the pro pelotons, this stuff has been abused under water code and they're trying to crack down on it. But the I don't pro- think it's their level to crack down on it. Though. Yeah. yeah. In, in making an over-inclusive thing. Yeah. You, you're probably, you might get rid of some, some cheaters, but Maybe the cheaters, one or two. Yeah. The cheaters are still going to find out ways to cheat because they're very creative and they can get around the, the codes often, especially when there's not a lot of competition testing. And you're making people with health conditions not be included. And that's really, really hard. And here's the what I think is the most egregious. So within 24 hours before the start of competition, you cannot take all beta-2 agonists, regardless of the mode of administration, all painkillers, including tramadol and NSAIDs, and then all substances included in the 2021 water monitoring program. So I, this is the one I struggle with the most. So um, beta-2 agonists um, include a lot of medications for asthma. So albuterol, simbicort, dulera. Athletes who have like, an asthma attack out at UTMB are fucked. Yeah. That being said, you know, I see where they're coming from. And that's the hard part of some of these things. Like at worlds in at the, my first world championships in 2014, I come around the corner and I see like 50 athletes puffing on inhalers. Yeah. In, and in, that's like behind trees and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like, yes, yeah. people have asthma for sure. That's clearly an abuse of it at some level. Like it's not like people with asthma aren't going to be the best performance across the board. So I see it, but the problem is, there are people with severe issues and, you know, being over-inclusive and legislating this stuff in this manner is going to make them be excluded. And that sucks. Well, and there's a say I actually need to, I didn't look into like just how many athletes have asthma. It's probably, if I would guess off the top of my head, I would say somewhere in the realm of like five to 10% of athletes competing yeah. at UTMB have exercise induced asthma or asthma of other origin. And those athletes are probably taking albuterol every single day. And imagine like getting to the start of UTMB, this exceedingly long race and not being able to take a medication you take every single day. And yeah. I struggle with that one. And then um, painkillers, including tramadol and NSAIDs. I think tramadol is a great example. That should be legislated by WADA. But these things are not legislated by WADA for a reason. Like WADA goes through this really big scientific fact-finding mission. And I don't know the science behind it, but if WADA's not doing it, we don't, like going beyond is really tough. And NSAIDs are a great example. So, um, you know, ibuprofen, uh, Aleve, um, that sort of thing. Last year at UTMB, athletes got caught, quote, I'm putting it in quotes, for NSAID use, but then they didn't get punished. Um, and I think that also introduces complications because it's like, 
if we're putting this under like quote unquote doping and then you're not going to punish it, it undermines the real rules, which are the 2021 WADA monitoring program that's also applied here. That should apply for sure. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a difficult issue when you do this without the like rigorous fact-finding mission that WADA has in their, you know, governing body code. And I think it becomes a difficult issue. Like if they did rule, like if they did like punish that athlete that took NSAIDs, you're putting NSAIDs and testosterone in the same category. Yeah. And I have a fundamental problem with that because NSAIDs are very different than like testosterone doping. And in this situation, they would both be labeled as like doping, which yeah. are not doping, but like, I, I don't know how you would exactly categorize these new UTMB findings. Yeah. And maybe it's just like an adverse finding or something like that. Maybe it only applies to the race. Maybe it just nulls their result. Like, I guess there's a lot of, there's a lot of open things here, but you know, I think if you're going to go beyond the the rules in, in, in this type of place, you need to be really careful not to exclude, because if you're saying, Hey, if you're not like people with poor health, can't run, do running races. I think running is not going to accomplish what it can. And we need to be as maximally inclusive as possible. And so that happens within bounds, obviously. Like we can't have people that need to go out and like, you know, take steroids to make themselves like 300 pounds of pure muscle. Like that's not good. Um, but I don't think that's happening. I, I don't think that's how the system is being abused. Well, I also think people with health issues can also be people on top of the podium. Like, yeah. you know, we, exactly. have, we, yeah, have yeah. Athletes, we have athletes who have Hashimoto's um, thyroid issues and they're taking thyroid medication and they might be finishing on top of the podium. And, you know, that's totally fine. Um, but I think, you know, as we go through this, I think one, follow the rules. These yes. are still the rules. And even though we think they're egregious and can be challenging for people with medical issues like still follow them yeah. very very important so like know these rules follow these rules um but i think just more like questioning and i think this is where like we really need to think about like what what are we actually trying to make an impact on and can you do it at this like smaller systems level and maybe it happens like maybe this is a good thing like i don't know enough about doping in particular to, to not say it is but if it is going to be enacted there needs to be stakeholder involvement of people with health issues that will be affected so yes, yeah. i think like just like all types of um, you know, legislative processes in democracies. Um, you have public comment. And um, these rules for me were kind of a surprise when I first started. I did not know about the NSAID prohibition before UTMP last year. So I wasn't able to properly advise athletes. It's like, this should happen out in the open with all athletes giving their, their, um, the rationales. And if they decide after that, that we're still going to do this, then that's UTMB's prerogative. And it makes sense. And even if it's not, I mean, they're a private company, they can do what they want. But I think you need to have the people that are affected involved, um, which isn't us, you know, and, you know, actually, I guess it is you now because, you know, you just took prednisone, for example, and um, who knows what you have to take in the future for your autoimmune conditions. But um, I mean, I think you just need to have everyone involved. I totally agree. Awesome. Do you want to go on to listener corner or the hydration? Let's do hydration. Awesome. Let's actually, I think it's going to be hard to cover all the hydrations. Let's do mm -hmm. hydration wearables and then we'll save the breakdown of all the oh. hydration products for next week. What do you think? I think it's good. It's kind of like what we did with shoes. We'll, we'll save the shitting for next week. This yeah. week we'll just do like an intro, a primer on some of the science. We get a whole week to get excited about it. Yeah. So I think the science of hydration is fascinating um, because we talked a lot about fueling and how that operates within pretty narrow bands, unless a person does wild body hacking things to themselves that I think have zero utility for almost anyone. Um, hydration, meanwhile, is just so variable for so many different people. Um, and I think the, the science of wearables is starting to find these changes and we're seeing athletes report back just 
totally different sweat rates when they're using these devices. It's been kind of like the Wild West. And I think some yeah. of them, there might be some merit and there's like definitely more scientific evidence going into some of them. But the way that these wearable wor wearables work is a lot of them use what, what we call potentiometric ion sensors. Um, so those help to look at like the electrolyte flow dynamics and specifically at pH, chloride, potassium, and sodium levels. Cool. And they're, they're actually pretty cool when you dive into the yeah. science of them. I have some questions surrounding, so a lot of them are tested in pretty like sterile environments where yeah. like, you know, people aren't moving, like their sweat's not evaporating. And so I have questions about what happens like in the real world, like with strap one of these on at Western States when there's like sweat contamination, like mud is flying onto the skin. There's all kinds of stuff getting on the skin. So the big takeaway there is strap and on at Western States, <laughs> yeah. strap on at Western States. Just take that away, everyone. That's the main science to remember. And, and also evaporation challenges too. And then I think the other challenge too is when you go to like, I was diving into some of these websites this weekend and yeah. just like checking out different like what they report on the science there's very little like scientifically like published results validating these yeah. and so a lot of them are being done like a lot of the validation studies for these wearables are being done just like within house and i think we really need like these outside scientific groups to come in and validate them yeah i mean it's a very exciting area that the fact that you can do this through ion changes in these wearables is mind-blowingly fun. It is mind-blowingly like, fun. Like, what is the future of wearables if we can do this? Like, I bet we're going to have wearables soon that are, I mean, I can't wait for the blood lactate wearable. That's going to be game Or the continuous blood lactate. That's going to be so oh, cool. Oh my God, as a coach, 10 orgasms right there. I know, that is that is amazing. But I think actually, like, so they can study cool things. So there's one, an athlete actually just sent me something called H-Drop. Hmm. Um, and that looks at different, different metrics related to hydration. It actually, so it straps on the upper arm. Strap on. <laughs> and yes. it actually, it reminds me of like the old school, like iPhone pouches where you could run like with your iPhone strapped onto your upper arm. And those used to drive me, like I did one run with this yeah. when I was like, I don't know, like 16 or something. And I was like, actually maybe like 18. And I was like, never again. <laughs> what will I wear an iPhone strapped to my upper arm? Yeah. I don't get it. I love running with phones because I like to take pictures everywhere I go. I just carry it. Yeah. I just, it's actually nice. If you carry your phone, it makes you so ready and racist to have handhelds. Um, I find that like, it's actually kind of about the same weight. It's perfect. So when I'm carrying my iPhone, when you see me out there, it's not just for pictures, I'm getting my boss set training. This is the weight training that Swap approves of right here. I only hold it in my right hand. So when I switch my phone to the left hand, I have like kind of a conniption. I'm like, oh my gosh, this feels so weird. So I think my right arm's a little <laughs> bit more jacked than my left. <laughs> Maybe for other reasons too. <laughs> that sucks. Um, but oh, gross. Yeah. At least we waited like an hour and twenty minutes into this podcast. Yeah, episode. no one's listening. Um, sure, that's all I'll say. Um, but the um, I was just thinking, mountain legs. You know, we have this workout routine that's really, really hard um, and gets your quads, you know, jacked. Um, but then mountain arms is just like lifting an arm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like so the true. exact exact that, uh, distribution. That is so, so true. Well, each drop actually measures, or they like claim to measure cool things. So they can measure core temperature and first sweat drop. And I think those actually are probably pretty easy. Like I think that's kind of hard to mess up. Those seem like they would be pretty accurate to me. Um, they also measure sweat rate, total fluid loss, um, and then also body temperature as well. And I I'm a little I feel like it would be harder under situations of like sweat contamination and evaporation to have accurate sweat rate in total fluid loss. But I think like once you get a baseline on yourself, like I could see where this could theoretically be useful. I just want to try it first yeah. before I make any statements. Yeah, we need we need to try it. Um, if anyone's listening out there wants to send us something, hey, do it. Um, but I'm curious, like, it brings up curiosity for me about sweat tests more generally too, um, because I think that they have, um, there's good things about them and limitations with them. And you see this a lot in coaching. Um, so if an athlete does an at-home sweat test, so it's, let's say it runs an hour and weighs themselves, um, they'll sometimes say, 
hey, I need to consume these astronomically high levels of fluid. I think, you know, scientifically part of that is because glycogen stores um, water. So as you burn glycogen, your weight will go down naturally, even if it's not all fluid loss. Um, so be careful with that. And then part of it is that the body has, it's not working into its compensatory mechanisms. So in the real world, I found that if an athlete hydrates at the same level that they measure on a traditional sweat test, often they overhydrate and will have major stomach issues or even hypotremia. Oh, I can't say that word. Hyponatremia. Hyponatremia. It is hard to say. Say that 10 times fast. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's one of those words that I've read a lot, but have not heard said very often. So ah, we say that a lot in medicine. It's just gotten in my head. It gets, I get, I get uh, nervous about it. Um, so I would say use these, any feedback you're getting as a way to make iterative changes to what you already do rather than fundamental alterations. I had an athlete that's doing Western States that doubled their fluid intake. Oh my gosh. Based on a that sweat scares test me. Yeah. after great success. Um, in the past. And I'm like, you probably want to be careful with that because, you know, even if that works temporarily, your body has clearly worked well enough using this other method. So maybe you'll get up to two times, but start at 1.2 times, not two times. I feel like the summary of this podcast, as we talked about like strides and building and speed and yeah. now hydration, it's like the iterative approach. I feel like <laughs> we're all about the iterative approach. And I, it sounds like way cooler than it actually is. I like the word iterative a lot. I do too. I use it all the time. I feel like it's like one of those Silicon Valley like buzzwords that it's like when someone uses that in like in a pitch, they're like, oh my Lord. Yeah. Yeah. There's They've used this 25 times in the last pitch, dismissive, all, all, their, all their other pitches. Lots of dismissive winking gestures out there right now, <laughs> working on your right bicep, curiously <laughs> enough. Um, so next week, we'll actually get into um, all of the different hydration options and some more details on electrolytes and what we like to see. Um, it's going to be super fun. I think um, I think it'll be a good, sexy topic. And we have two, we have like three different categories of hydration products coming ahead. So the first category is kind of like the everyday hydration stuff that we like tend to drink for good electrolytes, but maybe not in performance. Yeah. I usually think about that as like noon and liquid IV. And then we have more of our performance products, which I think of like as Roctane, Tailwind, Scratch, um, some of these more like performance focused, um, more actually even like caloric products. And then the fun stuff yeah. like Gatorade and Coca-Cola and like chocolate milk and apple juice, the fun stuff you drink after the race and maybe during the race. Yeah, too. maybe there's some interesting when I, science. When my I'm races trying. are going wrong, I tend to drink Coca-Cola because I'm like, oh, what the heck? I'm, I think what I'm going to get into next week, I think Coca-Cola is an elixir from the gods and oh. we should, we should use it. Um, so, uh, we're also going to get into tons of fun stuff on this week's bonus episode, which we're going to be doing live from the American College of Sports Medicine Conference. Um, so that'll be on Patreon, patreon.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. Um, thank you for everyone that supported us. It means the world to us. And um, do you want to get to Listener Corner? Let's do this. We have the best Listener Corners as evidenced by Patreon. Let's yeah. dive in. And so this is on a similar topic as before. And I think it just gives a little bit more broad context and I think is also super touching in some ways. In the fall of 2021, I was diagnosed with anemia with ferritin levels sitting at a grand total of zero. And flashback to why our discussion on the UTMB um, limitations are very important. A ferritin yeah. level of zero is so low and I mean, definitely like merits an iron infusion. Scary. Probably yeah, very scary. Hospitalization. Yes. I experienced extreme discomfort running and instant shortness of breath along with muscle pain. I felt that the years of strength I built running had all been for nothing and was quickly re regressing, getting slower and dreading the sport that I love so much. Around the same time, Megan was battling her own health crisis and had to stop running. Megan's openness about her health, not only physically, but mentally, inspired me to be more open regarding my own. Each podcast, I felt less alone and more supported by you both, knowing that everyone goes through shit, but that there is always a light at the end of the tunnel and so much beauty along the way. Since that initial diagnosis, I have received two iron infusions. However, I cannot seem to manage to keep my iron levels, my ferritin levels at a healthy level. Before all of this, I was vegetarian. I am slowly eating meat again, hoping that incorporating it into my diet will increase my iron. Today, you discussed disordered eating and how it can be masked by dietary restrictions, specifically for some vegetarians and vegans. 
I know that I restrict my eating, but justify it by saying that I'm simply trying to make the healthy choice. I have lost touch with what my body needs, making decisions based on what others around me eat and by what society deems as healthy. I ignore the tendrils of an eating disorder masked by an orthoretic mindset. But today, while listening to you and Megan talk so openly about this topic, somehow clicked. I have nothing to be ashamed of, and that, yet again, I am not alone. I can now say with confidence and with no shame that I have disordered eating and I need to seek help. In order to crush some dishes, I need to crush this mindset, and I have never felt more ready to do so. Wow. Wow. What a journey. I love for that listener. And, you know, love for you all. I feel like the, the untold journeys that we're all going through, you know, it's even if they're not out in the open, just know that everyone's there with you. We're there with you. And we love you just as you are, um, you know, especially when you're going through those dark forests. And wow, so that closing sentence, in order to crush some bitches, I need to crush this mindset. And yeah. I think it's so true that like, you know, getting healthy should be the number one priority if, if, if you're struggling with something like this. And I think taking the steps to embrace that is so beautiful and so amazing. Also so challenging too. And yeah. we're here right alongside you. And, and you have nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Like this existence is hard and you are the fucking best just as you are. So we love you all. Thank you for listening. Woohoo and huzzah. Woohoo. Bye.